Good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. Look, a new warning from former President Barack Obama tonight. He says that what he calls anything goes politics is not just toxic, but dangerous to democracy all around the world. That one of the easiest ways to win votes is to tap into people's growing sense of anxiety and fear and vertigo, their sense of loss, their resentment of change, and to tell them that their tradition and their values, their very identities are under attack by outsiders. And you add it all up, and you've got a recipe for backlash and polarization and the sort of toxic slash-and-burn, anything-goes politics that we've seen erupt just about everywhere. He's also got a few and things And it is dangerous. He's also got a few things to say about the new generation of leaders all around the world as well. And that brings us to the big question in American politics tonight. Who are America's new leaders? Who will they be? Nancy Pelosi announcing that she's stepping down from the House leadership after 20 years. Some of the most familiar faces in our politics, everyone from Joe Biden to Donald Trump to Chuck Schumer to Mitch McConnell, there's a theme. Are you seeing it? Well, they've been with us for years, decades. And so is it time for the passing of the torch? And also, what sounds like a worker rebellion tonight at Twitter? Office is closed again. Badge access suspended again. All amid an apparent mass exodus of employees saying thanks, but no thanks. Elon Musk ultimatum to work, quote, extremely hardcore, unquote whatever that apparently means. More to come on that in a moment. Got a lot of talk about tonight. Here with me, CNN anchor and correspondent, Adi Cornish. Also, Liam Donovan, former National Republican Senatorial Committee aide. And CNN senior political analyst, Kirsten Powers. I'm glad you're all here today. You know, look, every name I just mentioned, (laughs) you were going back probably to your college and high school days and going, yes, I remember when they were in office then. Here we are at a different time. Speaker Pelosi saying that she is going to pass the torch. But do we have a sense of this move to welcome a new generation of leaders? Is it reactive, do you think, Kirsten, to the loss of the House or just the season that she spoke of as time being here? Well, Nancy Pelosi had promised four years ago uh, in order to secure votes to be speaker again that she would step down. So this isn't something that she just decided to do on a whim. You know, I would say that as a very embittered Gen Xer, the baby boomers really never go away. And there they all are. Right. So it's like so that's on the one hand how I feel. On the other hand, Nancy Pelosi was an incredible Speaker of the House, and I, th- I, f- I find her to be almost irreplaceable. I think Hakeem Jeffries is an incredibly impressive person, and we'll see how he does, you know, if he ends up in the job. But she really is a once-in-a-generation kind of politician, right? And she will go down in history as one of the greats, and if not, you know, the greatest Speaker of the House. So, so when you look at it that way, you say, well, it's good that she stayed as long as she did. And she did mentor these, you know, these people that are coming up. So it's not like they don't know anything and they don't know what they're doing. I mean, these are people who have studied under her. And, you know, I think she's and, and she's also going to be around for a little while. Right. I, I mean, she's still going to be in Congress. It's not yeah. that she's, she's just leaving leadership. But on that point, I mean, um, Liam, you and I have talked about this in the past as well. The idea of the mentorship. You hear a lot of people in Congress right now talking about the invaluable mentorship, either watching her from afar before they wanted to run or really in Congress, probably on both sides of the aisle. She means she's a history maker in her own right. Um, 
But have they done enough to cultivate an obvious heir apparent down the line? I mean, the one, two, and three are stepping down. Have they done enough? Well, I think that's the issue. I mean, obviously, it's a big loss for the Democratic Party. It's a big loss for Republicans who are losing their best villain. But if there's a one critique that I think is valid when it comes to the 20 years that she spent in this uh, position, uh, not cultivating uh, that next generation, not having an order, orderly transition, you've had a lot of future speakers uh, leave the chamber. I mean, there's half a dozen I can rattle off off the top of my head who are no longer there. And so uh, even the fact that we were up in the air until noon today as to what her plans were, I think that gives you a sense of how chaotic this transition is and what how steep the learning curve is if they try to step into her shoes. Well, you know, Adi, you know, and first of all, I can't wait to hear your new podcast, everyone out there. It's it's phenomenal because you always understand the assignment. We'll be clear in a second what that means. But, you know, when you think about that, she understood the assignment and the idea of cultivating new leadership. At the same token, you remember quite well when the likes of Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez would come in and others. And many um, thought, look, like, I get that we need to have institutional knowledge in Congress. That's important to know the ropes. But it also can be a hindrance and an anvil to have sort of a notion of, look, we know we have to be here. We know how this works, as opposed to sort of blowing up the system from within and saying, here's how it should work. What do you see as this new generation of leaders looking like? I want to come at it from a slightly different angle. First of all, I think President Obama was Gen X, so he definitely had a shot. And the reason why I'm bringing that up is because you started with him, right? And under his sort of terms at office, there was not necessarily a new generation of politicians who rose in his style. And in fact, you saw, I think, upwards of a thousand seats being lost um, by Democrats in state houses across the country. That sounds minor, but this is about the pipeline. And then when it comes to Pelosi, you know, she herself says power has to be taken. It is not given to you. People have talked about Steny Hoyer being next. Steny Hoyer didn't like step aside because she seemed like a nice girl from Baltimore. Like she <laughs> fought her way in and she took it. Mm-hmm. And the reason why no one has come up since is because no one else has accomplished what she could do with the same superpowers that she has, so to speak. And these are powers every lawmaker has, but they don't have them in equal measure. Can you fundraise? Are you a legislative whiz? Or are you a really good show pony? And I think that Pelosi is really good at, like, getting in front of the cameras, taking the fight to people. We know she's a super fundraiser, and she absolutely has proven 20 years of legislative wizardry. I mean, speaking about the camera, I mean, just look at this screen, right? She's in front of how many different, or behind, how many different presidents. I mean, obviously, there's one of her tearing up a speech um, at one point, the Day of the Union, which is an iconic moment for a variety of reasons. But then there is, as you all pointed out, the idea of what President Obama had to say. And we're talking about the idea of a new generation. Um, Here's what he had to say uh, just earlier today at the Obama Foundation Democracy Forum about the idea of new leadership. Listen. Renewing our democratic culture will take decades and not years. And that is why the ideas of a 61-year-old ex-president are less relevant than the ideas and insights of a new generation of leaders who are better attuned to the changes that are taking place around the world. And by the way, will be the ones that carry democracy's torch into the future. Now, Kirsten, if I was a cynic, I would say is a little bit, if he's saying 61-year-old former president is problematic, We've got an incumbent president who's got a couple more years than that. Um, Is he 
referencing that in a subtle way? Or is this a matter of saying, look, more broadly, I'm not the one to talk about yes. the future when I've got maybe excellent alternatives for the future in front of me. I think it's more likely the latter of what you said. And I just want to say that Gen X did try to claim Obama, but he's <laughs> technically a baby boomer. Trust me, we tried. <laughs> um, and uh, so I think that he is, is talking more. And, and I also want to say, even when people are saying some people need to step aside, it doesn't mean everybody needs to step aside, mm-hmm. right? So that, that's the issue. I don't like the kind of ageism of even around Joe, you know, Joe Biden, which is, oh, he's too old, he should step aside. Look, if you have an issue with Joe Biden, make an issue with Joe Biden. Like, his issue's not the age. So you have to, and same thing with Pelosi. For 10 years, people have been saying she's too old. And then she was one of the only people who could handle Donald Trump, right? So... It's not that there can be no people that are are older. It's just I think what President Obama is saying is we do need to cultivate younger people who have fresher perspectives and different perspectives um, and, you know, and and start to bring up a a new generation rather than being like, oh, remember Barack Obama? We love Barack Obama every time he comes on. You know, it's like he can't always be that person. It doesn't just seem to me to be like an esoteric discussion about why you need fresh blood, though, or why you need fresh faces. Young voters... Yeah. carried the day in these elections. So the idea of trying to have fresh leaders or newer, younger voices, isn't it a reflection of the fact that younger voters were the ones to say, ah, excuse me, we've got a lot of power, we're going to wield it? Well, I think it's striking 10 days into what is now the 2024 election cycle when we seem to be on a collision course between you know the same people that ran in 2020, again, both uh, the baby boomer generation. And I think in light of you know, the young voters that did turn out, I think that's particularly striking. And so having President Obama come in and, and remind us that, that it's, it could be time to turn the page, I think that's, that's particularly on the Republican side, trying to figure out, okay, how do we move beyond Donald Trump? Or, or can we move beyond Donald Trump? And it is that next generation of Gen X Republicans <laughs> who would be waiting in the wings, potentially. This Gen X baby boomer thing is a really big issue. No, it's a I really, don't, it's a really I big don't deal. want to go there, no. It's a, it's a thing. It's, I, think, I think you're making an assumption there about what that youth vote was about. We're going to know more soon. It could have very easily been that in the areas where you saw that increased youth vote, it was about a right potentially being taken away, mm-hmm. that conversation in abortion, also about the election denialism, the perception of that, that that was something being taken from them rather than saying we have so much faith in the institution, yay, government. We were also seeing the introduction of the first Gen Z candidates, mm-hmm. but just One thing I want to put out there, and this is my own weird theory, the last decade has seen a lot of leaderless movements from this generation. You know, starting with Occupy Wall Street, Black Lives Matter, these are movements that on purpose were diffuse and were about sharing the spotlight and sharing the leadership, which is great. It doesn't mean, though, you necessarily produce a John Lewis or something like that, because that movement was hierarchical, right? And patriarchal, as we know. And so I think that we're expecting the old rules to apply to a different generation. And what they like about an AOC, et cetera, is obviously like her affinity and ability to communicate with them on their level. Um, But I think even she is not going to say, I'm the leader of this. I'm the voice of this generation, because that's just not going to fly with them. So I'm not sure you're going to see people crop up the same way as a Pelosi era politician would, where like you are so excited, your dad's a Democratic mayor and you shake hands with JFK, like in your cotillion dress or whatever. It's just like, to me, a very different 
moment in it's terms of how they It's a very visual black politics. and white photo that I'm it seeing. Is. With a, with it a, with is. A Polaroid. I'm doing this in my mind. The Polaroid is shaking in my head and coming into, into frame in that. But it's a, point, it's a point well taken. The idea of whether that's even transferable into yeah. politics These more days, broadly. that same photo would have to be you protesting in Pelosi's office to have mm. the same impact. Like, yeah. look at me. I was there, you know. Yeah, also, I think to remember that some of the biggest fans of Bernie Sanders were young people, right? So they're not always necessarily going to go with the person who's younger. They're going to go with the person who's talking about the things that they care about. And and so, in fact, you know, a lot of the people who were more skeptical of a Bernie Sanders were older people. Older people tend to be more skeptical of older people because they're like, wait, I'm your age and I, <laughs> I can't, can't remember where my keys are, so it must room. be a problem. So how, do you, how are you like flying around the country, right? So it's, it, whereas the young people, are really looking for people who, who are speaking yeah. about the things that they care about, which are a lot different than what you'll hear from a lot of mainstream Democrats. What is this radical thing about representative republics? What are we talking <laughs> about? We're coming right back in a moment, and we're going to hear more from former President Obama tonight saying, quote, we're going to have to figure out how to live together or we will destroy each other. Oh, my God, I almost tried to imitate his cadence. I don't know why that happened. We'll tell you what else he's saying next. <laughs> Well, the, the interesting thing is, you notice election deniers don't deny their own election. <laughs> Funny how that works. <laughs> um, how many of them actually believe that uh, some of the nonsense that, that circulates versus those who think it's convenient or it's a way to own the libs mm-hmm. or it's a way to send a message um, or align themselves with Trump? That's hard to say. But... What is important is that because of some really concerted efforts in a lot of important states, some of the most egregious, prominent, uh, and potentially dangerous election deniers, they got thumped. They, They got beat. Well, that was the former President Obama on The Daily Show tonight. And how much are we going to miss Trevor Noah in that spot? I mean, just... Okay, I'll move on. But President Biden made the fight for democracy central to the midterm message. And tonight, the man he served with, former President Barack Obama, of course, is warning the fight for democracy is far from over and making it very clear it's not just a right versus left or Republicans versus Democrats problem. And we're going to talk all about it with Audie Cornish. She's back with me, Liam Donovan, and Kirsten Powers as well. And he made the comment, you guys, about there being a concerted effort on the trail. He was a part of that concerted effort. I mean, just look at this scorecard. He had a lot of skin in this game, frankly, in terms of when he was campaigning for people. And he had, what, like, what eight to three scorecard record there of the people that he was campaigning for and talking about. Those are really, really good numbers that he had in terms of being there. But one of the things I think is fascinating, Liam, is, look, when President Biden went out for his closing message to talk about democracy in peril, people thought, uh, do you want to talk about the economy, sir? Because that seems to be what the polls are, do- are doing. And then what happened? In the elections, it seemed to be that democracy not only was on the ballot, but election denialism was on that ballot as well. And now you have President Obama saying it's still an issue. 
Why do you think that is, that he's making these cases even a week after the elections? Well, I think when you have an outcome like they did, beating all expectations, uh, doing better than historically they had any business doing, everything you did there is is validated. And so uh, at some level, I think um, coming through and, and you know, hitting on those themes that worked makes a lot of sense, particularly, as I said, we're in this 2024 uh, presidential cycle as a, as a you know, practical matter. And the former president just announced two days ago. So it's not a coincidence that even as prominent election deniers are conceding their elections, the biggest election denier of them all has entered, entered into the ring. And so I think that can't be a coincidence that Obama's hitting those themes now. I want to expand even beyond the, the here and now in this particular country, because his statements today, even outside The Daily Show, the former president spoke about this is not falling on this conservative or a liberal or a Democrat and Republican access. And he talked about the broader themes of democracy on the world stage. Listen to this. The threat to democracy doesn't always run along a conservative, liberal, left-right axis. This has nothing to do with traditional partisan lines or policy preferences. What we're seeing, what's being challenged, are the foundational principles of democracy itself. The notion that all citizens have a right to freely participate in selecting who governs them. The notion that votes will be counted. And the party that gets more votes wins. That losers concede. That power is transferred peacefully. That the winners don't abuse the machinery of government to punish losers and entrench themselves and make it impossible for other parties to compete in future elections. I mean, that access he talks about, Adi, the, the idea of it, I mean, he's speaking more broadly from a, a higher perspective, so to speak. What do you make of the argument? I mean, to be honest, uh, it feels a tiny bit late. It feels like he's maybe just woken up to coming out and talking about this. When uh, 2016 came and went, there was a discussion globally about the rise of populism and nativist movements, not just here in the U.S., but in other parts of the world. And over the last few years, people have talked about authoritarian rule here, often in context of who Trump was sort of um, pals with, so to speak. And I, I get the sense that maybe Obama held back after he left office, like he needed a little bit of a rest. Yeah. And then later on uh, with Biden, he wanted to stay out of the way a little bit. But as a result, he kind of wasn't there yeah. at the forefront uh, to kind of um, land these punches. And maybe this was a wake up call. Maybe 20, maybe this election was an opportunity for him to come back, so to speak. I mean, anyone else jump in, but it just feels like, I mean, he didn't, he didn't you know, pull punches in one respect, though. I mean, I want to play this. I want you to respond to this, Kirsten, because I know we've talked about this in the past as well. You know, he was on the campaign trail, which is a counter to what he's doing right now, which is more measured and talking about this from a more esoteric professorial perspective. He went at people on the campaign trail. I mean, listen to this. Let's say you're at the airport and you see Mr. Walker and you say, hey, there's Herschel Walker. Heisman winner. Let's have him fly the plane. You probably wouldn't say that. Listen, it's easy to joke about Dr. Oz and all these quack remedies he's pushed on TV. If somebody's willing to peddle snake oil to make a buck, then he's probably willing to sell snake oil to get elected. If you were trying to create in a lab a wacky Republican politician, It'd look a lot like this guy. 
Mr. Masters. If Carrie Lake is your governor, we know what she'll be focused on because Donald Trump told us. He said if somebody asked Carrie, how's your family? She says the election was rigged and stolen. So, Kirsten, do you see a tension between today's Obama talking about having to figure out how to live together or we'll destroy each other and then him recognizing really the reality of what the candidates were like? I think it's both and. I think you can do both things. I think that you can be very, very clear about people who are dangerous. And it's certainly reasonable to say these people are dangerous in terms of democracy and to do your best to turn out voters. And you can pull the lens back and you can talk about the broader issue. Now, he hasn't, you know, I I don't know, I don't read and watch everything that Barack Obama does, but I do know in his book, A Promised Land, he does talk, he did use a very similar line in the book as to what he said about, you know, we're going to either learn to live together or we're going to perish. And, And making the point that the world watches, that the world is looking at the United States because we are the biggest democracy that has people from every creed, from every race, from every ethnicity living in this experiment. And is it going to work, right? And so it's not just a a democracy with a bunch of people who've been there for a long time. It's a democracy that's brought together all these different people with all these different beliefs. And can we make it work? And it's now an open question. And I don't think it was an open question for a lot of people in the past. And, and he made it very clear it was a very open question to him. Liam, when you, I mean, the way you describe it, Kirsten, is almost like America has this, the, the perfect Instagram filter of democracy. <laughs> they want the rest of the world to look at and say, hey, this is aspirational. And he's pointing out that through the kinks in that particular chain, I wonder if you look at this as you're talking about the 2024 election, and we all are already, how is this going to translate? And does this actually get followed by Republicans as well? You know, I think uh, we're sorting that out on the Republican side right now is what does that future look like? What do we want it to look like? Are we just going to be along for the ride uh, with Donald Trump uh, and, and, you know, sort of sit in the back and keep our hands and feet inside the vehicle? And I think there are more and more people waking up to the fact that you actually have to stand up and do something. You can't just expect that he's going to fade away. Um, and so I think that's, that's what uh, Republicans are grappling with internally right now. And the battle lines are, are being drawn. And I think there are obviously people who uh, could stand to be the alternatives. And, and how they proceed, I think, will determine uh, how Republicans head into 2024. A lot at stake, a lot to contemplate. The identity crisis is continuing to be here, everyone. Also, there is a developing story tonight. You heard of Twitter? Yeah. Well, the offices have closed again, and the employee access has been suspended. I would add again. And also, employees now are staging a mass exodus. So what in the world is going on at Twitter now? We'll try to explain next. Turmoil spreading tonight at Twitter, where there appears to be some kind of a mass exodus of workers who are rejecting Elon Musk's ultimatum to work extremely hardcore, which he defines simply as long hours at high intensity. But how many hours and how highly intense? What does that mean? Well, no one knows, but a lot of employees apparently didn't care to wait to find out. And they just said goodbye. CNN senior media reporter Oliver Darcy is here with more 
Oliver, there's a lot happening, seems, every other day at Twitter. A mass exodus now appears to be underway, and they're rejecting that 5 p.m. deadline of today, that ultimatum. And now I hear they're, they're closing their office buildings. Why? What do you hear from people inside of Twitter? Yeah, it really feels like Twitter is taking its last gasp here. I mean, if you look on Twitter right now, the top trend worldwide is RIP Twitter. And that's because scores of employees have seemingly resigned from Twitter, rejecting Elon Musk's ultimatum. Let's, let's, let's take viewers back. Musk earlier this week gave Twitter workers, the people who are remaining after those mass layoffs earlier this month, he gave them an, a choice, uh, work, quote unquote, hardcore or leave the company with three months of severance. It seems like a large amount of people have decided to leave the company. They don't want to work hardcore. And that's thrown the future of this platform into utter chaos. Um, I've been talking to people all day. One former executive who recently exited told me that with all these uh, departures, it's going to be hard just to keep the lights on over there. And so now with all these departures, uh, the people who are remaining, the management has suspended badge access into Twitter's offices, presumably because they're afraid that uh, employees who are technically no longer employed at Twitter uh, could potentially sabotage things. I'll read you the statement or the email they sent to staffers. It says, effective immediately, we are temporarily closing our office buildings and all badge access to will be suspended. Offices will reopen on Monday, uh, November 21st. And it goes on to say, we look forward to working with you on Twitter's future. Uh, but as, as you can see, just mass disarray has gripped this company here. I mean, you say this and talk about the lights coming on. I think to myself, what about security? What about who, who's guarding the hen house? Who's ensuring that it even operates and functions in any meaningful way? But there's also this moment because we're talking about this hardcore intensity. He seemed to soften his stance, Oliver, on getting rid of remote work just earlier today. It's just the latest, well, backtrack in his plans. And so, I mean, I wonder how this whiplash is really landing and affecting people who are still at Twitter, still employed, maybe waiting until Monday to figure out if their badge will work again. Everyone is confused. Uh, that, that's, the, that's the short answer. Uh, and I was told earlier today that management was really worried that they weren't going to be able to retain talent. They were really, yeah. I think it was becoming clear that a lot of employees were actually just going to leave Twitter altogether. And so some uh, sources told me that they were scrambling, trying to get people to stay. And Elon Musk seemed to recognize that. I'll, I'll read you part of a note he sent to the entire company um, when he softened his stance on remote, remote work. Uh, he said earlier today, um, or is it I had it here? Regarding remote work, all that is required for approval is that your manager take responsibility for ensuring that you are making an excellent contribution. And he went on to explain that basically people could remote, re work remotely if, uh, if management had okayed it. Um, and, and recently, I, I think you're even seeing Musk digest some of this news. Uh, he just tweeted moments ago about uh, how you turn a large fortune into a small one and uh, it, yeah, there it is on screen. How do you make a small fortune in social media? Start out with a large one. Really kind of uh, putting into context what's happened to his $44 billion purchase of the company. Wow. And you, you forgot to add that at the end of that um, discussion about remote work, the idea of, hey, by the way, if any of, your, of the employers who are supposed to essentially co-sign that you are working, if they're not truthful, goodbye as well. I mean, you have this sort of coded language. It's not yeah. even coded in that instance. But the idea of that new tweet, wow, a lot of chaos happening there. Oliver, nice to see you. We'll see how long Twitter stays up. I won't hold my breath.
That's all I'll say about that. Thank you. Thank nice you. seeing you. Well, look, as parents, we're passionate about what our kids are learning in school. But next, how culture wars in the classroom impacted the midterms. There are schools all over the country echoing with the cries for parents' rights, getting louder and louder for the last few years, if you haven't noticed. And it's becoming a big focus of the midterms, at least it was. Whether it's fights over COVID protocols or arguments over teaching about race and LGBTQ plus issues, the chaos at schools become, well, it's become part of the national conversation and it's continuing. Calm down. Yes. Calm down. We, we know who, we you, know are. who you are. We know, we who, know, you know are. who you are. You can leave freely, but we will find you and we know you who you are. You will never be allowed in we public again. And I'm going to come for everybody that comes at my kid with this stupid, ridiculous mandate we- to hate others because of their skin color. And you're forcing them to lie about other kids' gender. I am disgusted by your bigotry. Okay, right, right here. Look, right here. So, as you can see, fists are now flying. All of this on live television. Fists are flying. Wow. Every time I see that. Well, Adi Cornish has been looking into all of this on her brand new podcast. It's called The Assignment. We can't just focus on the presidential election anymore. What happens on the local level is what's most important and it affects the most important citizens of this country and that's our children. And so are there a lot of informed voters out there? Yes. Are there a lot that are not? Absolutely. And so to some extent, to make it a more partisan race, it helps those that are low information voters make a decision based upon what they believe. Adi, this podcast is phenomenal, and it really taps into an issue people have been talking a lot about. And the idea of parental rights under this big umbrella term, it exploded. Um, How consequential was this notion in the midterms? I don't think we can know that for sure or yet. The reason why I wanted to focus on it was because of those videos that we saw. What happened to those people? How did they channel that energy afterwards? And it turns out that a movement that started out about COVID policies ramped up because CRT and kind of flipped over because of LGBTQ rights has now become an actual movement with PACs that actually pour money into local races. There's a group called uh, 1776. There's a group called Moms for Liberty, which has uh, more than 200 chapters around the country. And Ron DeSantis has made education a very specific part of his anti-woke agenda, which means that he is now actually backing candidates. You can sign a pledge, say Ron DeSantis backs me, and you can draw on his political halo, so to speak, as you're reaching out to candidates. So I think what we wanted to do is just kind of live with those people for a minute, talk to them about how they got activated and what they want to do with the power that they have now, because school boards do have tremendous power at the local level. I mean, speaking of that issue, look at places like Virginia, right, where you have Governor Glenn Youngkin, who really tapped into it during COVID-19. And you talked about the idea how it evolved from that. I mean, there, there, there's actually a change in what's happening in their um, proposed new education standards. I want to show people on the screen, Kirsten, what this looks like. For example, the old version for in terms of racism, this is one of the areas you're talking about. 
The old version talked about racism, prejudice, discrimination, antagonism, and a variety of other issues. The new version would have no mention of these issues. In terms of climate, for example, a different, a different education standard that would have using information resources and other visuals to identify and determine out location, climate, et cetera, were impacted. The new version talks something very different. And so you've got a bit of a, I don't know if it's a bleaching or a I hate to call it sanitizing because it suggests that these topics, Kirsten, somehow must Bleaching be removed. Bleaching is a great word, actually. What do you think about it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that, well, first of all, I have to just say, you know, watching the video of this white man screaming and yelling at the top of his lungs, at, like, and, and the right thinks that this is totally normal behavior just makes me think of like there was a viral video like three or four years ago about a black college student screaming at somebody and the right thought it was the most heinous thing they'd ever seen in their lives, right? And now these adults, right, parents are screaming and yelling and threatening people. Something is very wrong with that. Now, if you're upset, you have a right, you know, you have a right to be upset about things. You're, you have a right to have a perspective about things. You don't have a right to do that. And you don't have a right to be intimidating and scaring uh, the people who are working on the school boards. So, you know, what it sounds like is there are people that are trying to have their political views recognized in what's being taught to children. And what I think they argue is that already political views are being taught to their children, and mm. that's why they think they're a counterbalance to that. Yeah, except Believe I, I, you I have, don't think you have it's, like it's kids, not right? a political view. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. not a political view that there is climate change. There's not mm. a political view. So I don't, there are some things that I think when I was reading about it where I was like, you know, this is on the line. Like, I can kind of see where they're coming from. But there's some of the stuff where it's like, look, my parents were educators, they were professors, and they had a lot of issues with the things that I was taught at school. They never behaved like this. Liam, what's your thought? Real well, quick. I mean, I think what we just witnessed is that that's the fever pitch. And you mentioned, you know, this midterm. I think it wasn't a key issue, but it was a year ago in Virginia. I'm a Virginia voter. I'm a Virginia public school parent. That was um, the that was, and that, that was that was the, the, the fever. And there was a, there was a moment where Terry McAuliffe stepped in it by saying that parents didn't have you know, mm. touched this nerve. And I think this is all downstream from the fact that during COVID, when people were home, uh, helping teach their kids or at least alongside their kids as they're Zooming, people got to peek into the education system, into the curriculum in ways that were completely unfamiliar. And I think that led to um, concerns and led to further scrutiny and, and a level of paranoia that dovetails with the broader distrust of institutions that have, that have um, really yeah. characterized our politics in the last six years. Sounds like a podcast we got to listen to. And, of course, it's called The Assignment. Everyone cannot wait. We'll stick around for a second as well and talk more about these. But also, look, a different issue. She wanted to wear braids. Who am I talking about? The former First Lady of the United States, Michelle Obama. But she says America wasn't ready for her natural black hair. Her explanation after this. Michelle Obama opening up this week about a dilemma many black women face, whether or not to wear natural hairstyles. The former first lady revealing that she considered wearing braids while living in the White House, but after some thought, decided against it, saying that Americans weren't, quote, ready for her natural hair. Instead, she kept her hair straight as the country adjusted, she said, to a black first lady and family in the White House. Back with me, Adi Cornish, and also Karen Finney is here. Joining us also is former Obama White House official and Montgomery County Council member, 
Will Jawando. Glad to see you all here. I mean, this idea, we've talked in the past and we will continue to talk about this issue. The idea of the pressures that are imposed to have conformity. The idea of what we consider to be, to be professional, what we consider to be beautiful, mm-hmm. what is punishable, and how we take people seriously based on their appearance. We are aware of this. But hearing it from a former first lady about that pressure in the White House, I found particularly striking, given that we knew that there was a lot at stake and a lot of eyes on them. What did you make of that? Well, first of all, I thought, sister, America wasn't ready for a black woman in the White House, period. Let's just start with that. But also, as you, as I read through what she said, understanding the first black family, the first black president, she also understood, you know, I worked for Hillary Clinton in the White House. And the first lady takes on a lot of whatever our cultural baggage is about women. Um, I remember the first time she wore pants. It was, you know, freaked people out. And or a sleeveless so, photo for yes. her the portrait. Remember that? Yes, yes. And so for Michelle, Michelle what, rightfully understood Let's not, I don't want to create a distraction. And it's, as we can all think it's ridiculous that it would have created a distraction. No, no, it was imposed on her. The politics of fear New Yorker cover made that yeah. pretty clear, right? Where it was like Obama as the quote unquote terrorist. Yes. And her, just the mere styling of her hair in that image was supposed to signify militancy and violence. The character's wearing right. a gun. And it comes from the mind of an artist who, at the time, I think given his age, would have those associations of sort of the Black Panther yeah. activist violence type thing. So it yeah. was out there, you know. But I, I, wanna, the, yeah. but I also want to bring in Will into this conversation because I think we often talk about, you know, the Crown Act, obviously, that passed yeah. in the House. It's still waiting for its chance in the Senate, whether it will get it or not. The idea, and for many people, the idea that you could actually be punished in the workplace, um, not just not respected, but punished for not looking appropriate, so to speak. Well, men are a part of this conversation as well. Um, very much so. I mean, look, I, mean well, I, I can zoom in on your hair if you want, but the, but the line, you got it, you got it tightened up. I got here. the line you know, you, got it. you know, saw, but it's all natural up top. <laughs> but thinking about it, I mean, you, you, in your perspective, this is not just a conversation about black women in here. No, no, it's about black people and it's about anti-blackness. Uh, it's about the centuries of effort that's put in to say that everything about us, our lips, our hair, our backsides, our skin color is negative uh, and that the epitome of perfect and the standard is white. And, and that has, uh, you know, when it was really sad, I have a Michelle at home, Karen knows, um, who when our uh, daughter came home and said, mommy, I want my hair to be straight and pretty like the girls on TV. We don't we have all black dolls. We have all black books. I mean, we have, you know, that seeps through the culture. And uh, I think I'm glad Michelle Obama talked about, First Lady talked about it, because it was a real consideration. It's something every day black people, particularly black women, are getting up, making decisions about how do I present myself to the world. And the Crown Act, we passed it in Montgomery County. We were the first county in the nation to pass it. And then Maryland is one of the 19 states that's passed it. Um, But it's such an important protection because it not only gives you legal protection. I don't know if you saw that young man who was on the... uh, the mat, uh, the wrestling mat. Had to cut off his dreads. While he was standing, while he cried, while his teammates watched him. Uh, you all, Every couple of months, you hear the cycling of someone not being able to graduate or go to school because they have locks or braids or twists. So it's still a big There's issue, a but it's connected. There's a social penalty. I mean, for sure, every time I ever came on television prior to taking this job, I straightened my hair. And when I decided not to, 
every single day it's been difficult. You know, every mm. single day I felt awkward. Every single day I thought, is this the right thing to do? Now? Yes, of course. Well, I'm the only now. one doing it. You look gorgeous. Right? I go into yeah. the hair and makeup and there's no one else wearing their hair this way. So the signals are very strong culturally. I just want to add one more thing in the time we have left. Her being able to say this now in some ways is a signal about the end of respectability politics, which is a sort of generational yeah, criticism that yeah. says there is nothing you can do to yourself that will make you equal in the eyes of someone who is racist or harbors racist ideas. And therefore, you shouldn't be doing all of these things because that's not going to get you there. The activism but, is going to get you really there. Really quickly, Harry. sure. Katanji Brown Jackson yes, with amen. her braids and amen. little girls getting their little wigs with their braids <laughs> for Halloween. Yeah. I mean, we have moved from where it, things were as the first lady. As And I hope that more little girls look at Katanji Brown Jackson and other women with natural hair and decide based on what makes them feel good, yeah. not based on... Wait, this, I'm sorry. This just, this just came in, though. I want to make sure we get this on air. Um, this came into my ear that Audie Cornish's hair is beautiful. Did you all get that? That was breaking news. Let it stay. Let it perpetuate everywhere in there. Will, you too. Karen, you too. I mean, you know. I'm here. The girl's here. And congratulations again on the new podcast, Adi. Thank you. Love to see it. Love to hear it. You can check it out wherever you get your podcast. It's called The Assignment with Adi Cornish, everyone. And for more Michelle Obama, make sure you tune in this Sunday night at 8 o'clock. Sarah Seidner hosts Michelle Obama's Mission, a conversation with Michelle Obama, Amal Clooney, and Melinda Gates. And next, everyone, two former presidents, a former vice president, the Speaker of the House, all laying out their visions for the future of this country. So whose vision is going to win? We'll talk about it next. Well, the midterms are already in the rearview mirror, as many of America's leading politicians are now looking to the future. Speaker Nancy Pelosi today announcing that she is stepping down from leadership, not Congress, but leadership. Hours after, the former vice president, Mike Pence, walked a pretty fine line while rebuking his former boss for January 6th. Just days after the former president announced his third run for the White House. And tonight... Former President Obama speaking about the dangers facing our democracy still. That progress makes democracy a whole lot more complicated. For one thing, it's easier for people to agree on stuff when the majority of people look the same, worship the same way, and share the same traditions. It's harder as societies become more diverse and Everybody is at the table. And we're going to have to figure out how to live together. Or we will destroy each other. I want to bring in CNN politics reporter and editor-at-large, Chris Saliza, and CNN political commentators, Karen Finney and Kristen Soltis-Anderson. I'm glad you're all here and thinking about this. And Saliza, without the tie, how relaxed of you. I love it. I love I, it. I, I, look, my mom may be watching. She may be asleep. I don't want to, I don't want to say she's watching, but, but my mom, every time I go on TV without the tie is like, mm-hmm. did you forget your tie? Did you? And I'm like, no, it's, you know, it's after 10. Wonderful. You know, I, I appreciate, I'm on mom's side forever in a day. I mean, I will I, always be. But the tie is sitting in the green room. Okay. By itself. Okay. Well, you know, it's a perfect lead-in to the idea of the ties that bind right now. Wow. You know what I did there? That's, profe- that's professional it was, it was subtle. It was, it was subtle. But one of the ties that did bind, if you were to compare and contrast, say, the style 
per se, of President Obama on these issues. And then what we heard on Tuesday night from the former president, um, hearkening back to the American carnage as speech. Yeah. Here's what he said, and I want to talk about it afterwards. We were a free nation, but now we are a nation in decline. We are a failing nation. Hundreds of thousands of pounds of deadly drugs, including very lethal fentanyl, are flooding across the now open and totally porous southern border. The blood-soaked streets of our once great cities are cesspools of violent crimes, which are being watched all over the world as leadership of other countries explain that this is what America and democracy is really all about. How sad. The United States has been embarrassed, humiliated, and weakened for all to see. So, I mean, not the glass half full speech one usually expects about a candidate in the ancient imagination, but in some respects, that has been the strategy, the idea of grievance-based politics. And the fact you've got all these heavy hitters out there right now, from the Pences to the Obama to, um, to Trump, et cetera, talking, what does it say to you that this is the subject matter still, the, the future as it's tied to our nation in peril? Well, I mean, it's stunning how completely out of touch uh, he is to the reality And I think, you know, one of the things that I took away from the election was that Americans, democracy matters to people. Freedom matters. Our values, those core values actually matter. And it was just a bizarre, as we've seen many times, actually, from Donald Trump, sort of, you know, it was like he was in his own universe. However, as we know, in his narrative, everything is horrible Mm -hmm. until he comes in to save the day. So I I was just thinking, to your point, watching that, it is totally the I alone can fix it mentality, right? Like, because what was fascinating was it wasn't just what he portrayed as like, the, you know, I mean, blood-soaked streets, cesspools of violence. It wasn't just that he did that. It was that he was he was saying two years ago, everything was perfect. Right. I mean, that was the other piece. It's yeah. like, well, everything was perfect two years. It, it got, I, I remember writing down, I was watching it and taking notes and I wrote down, everything got that bad in yeah. two years? Like, Everything was perfect. It was a utopia when Donald Trump was president. But in the last 18 to 24 months, everything is now terrible. Like, it's, well, it's a weird the, message. The problem with a message like that is that there are a lot of voters out there who are not happy with the way things are going. Mm-hmm. But the slice of voters who are outright angry about the way things are going is a little smaller. So this is actually a question in the exit polls. How do you feel about the way things are going in the country? Mm-hmm. Angry, disappointed, yeah. et cetera. If you're angry, I think Republicans won those voters by like a 57 point right. margin. It was enormous. But if you were in the I'm not mad, I'm just disappointed Ooh. sort of category. I believe <laughs> back to mothers all the I'm just disappointed. I believe Democrats actually won those voters. Like it was not you would think if you're disappointed in the way things are going, you would want a change in leadership. And and yeah. they those voters did not vote in big numbers for Republicans. So just doubling down on the if you're really mad vote for me message, but there's a limit to the number of people. But I want to play for you. I mean, you're, that, that's a strong point you've made, especially because today you also heard, I wasn't just gratuitously playing Trump's speech on Tuesday. <laughs> you know, it is a counter to what President um, Obama said mm-hmm. today. And there was a moment where he talks about the idea of that enticement of trying to use that grievance, trying to capitalize on that anger as the only platform you have. Here he is. One of the easiest ways to win votes is to tap into people's growing sense of anxiety and fear and vertigo, 
their sense of loss, their resentment of change, and to tell them that their tradition and their values, their very identities are under attack by outsiders. And you add it all up, and you've got a recipe for backlash and polarization and the sort of toxic slash-and-burn, anything-goes politics that we've seen erupt just about everywhere. And it is dangerous. That recipe has made a lot of cakes. It, it has <laughs> made a lot of brownies, too. No, no question. At the same time, again, I think Americans, because when Americans said they were angry at the exit polls, if you then ask why, there were a lot of different mm-hmm. reasons. And they didn't all vote for Republicans, actually. Some were mad at the idea that women would not have control of their own bodies. And they were mad at anybody who would try to take that away. Some, like young people, are mad about climate change. The point being, I mean, that Obama does so beautifully is to try to say, we can do this together. We don't have to be, and, you know, I will just say, as a biracial person, and he is too, when you have grown up on both sides of the color line, you really get a different viewpoint into both. And you want to say to white folks, don't be afraid. It's okay, right? I mean, he talked about eloquently once about how he was with his white grandmother and she saw him, he saw her being afraid of some young black men coming towards them. And I think he, he has always been so eloquent at saying there is more that unites us as human beings, as Americans, than that divides us. And let's not fall for that well, again. And he, and he talked about, you know, I think that use of that word anxiety is really Ooh, important, yes. right? Because back in 2016, I would argue that Americans were really frustrated. There was a lot of anxiety. And many voters said, I'm just ready to blow it all up. And that's how you wind up with Donald Trump as president. I don't think voters right now are in an I'm anxious and therefore I want to blow it all up kind of mode. And what we saw at the polls was actually voters making difference, differentiating, you know, certain types of Republicans from others. The kind of blow it all up type folks didn't do as well at the at the uh, ballot box. I think that people are expressing this anxiety not by saying, I want someone like Donald Trump. I want someone that's going to throw bombs. But they're actually beginning to pivot away a little bit from that harsh polarization. And, and that point, I mean, I want you to respond to this because yeah. I, I want to play and just sort of set this up in this contrast happening. I mean, I always think this idea of the, you know, yin and yang going on. Um, although I, Trump, Pelosi is neither yin nor yang. <laughs> but we'll just have a kumbaya moment for a second. But remember, Trump talks about this point. He takes a little bit of a moment the other day to talk about the criticism um, and the loss in the midterms. Here he is. Much criticism is being placed on the fact that the Republican Party should have done better. And frankly, much of this blame is correct. But the citizens of our country have not yet realized the full extent and gravity of the pain our nation is going through. And the total effect of the suffering is just starting to take hold. They don't quite feel it yet, but they will very soon. I have no doubt that by 2024, it will sadly be much worse and they will see much more clearly what happened and what is happening to our country. And the voting will be much different. So that was the sort of the foreboding tone of the future. And then there was what Speaker Pelosi said today when she was announcing that she's stepping down from leadership or would not um, be seeking the speakership again, obviously. Here's what that contrast looked like. With these elections, the people stood in the breach and repelled the assault on democracy. They resoundingly rejected violence and insurrection, and in doing so, gave proof through the night 
that our flag was still there. Our children, babies born today, will live into the next century, and our decisions will determine their future for generations to come. While we will have our disagreements on policy, we must remain fully committed to our shared fundamental mission to hold strong to our most treasured democratic ideals, to cherish the spark of divinity in each and every one of us, and to always put our country first. Chris, a different tone. Oh my gosh. I mean, it's like from two different planets. Um, The thing, maybe it's because we're talking about Barack Obama, but I just wrote down hope, which obviously was his slogan. Politics has been, at least as long as I remember it and as long as I've studied it, about hope in the future, right? Things are going to get better. They may not be perfect now. You may be struggling, but they're going to get better. I don't know how you run a presidential campaign, again, because I think Kristen's point is really important, again, different, different year, different mindset of the voters, again on streets of blood, cesspools of violence. I mean, he, he literally said, again, I wrote it down, America is failing. I just, if that works again, it's so anathema to how we always considered how uh, campaigns, not even presidential campaigns, campaigns in general are run in one. Hope and vision for the future. Think about, contrast Obama and Pelosi, what you just heard. Even Mike Pence in our town hall last night Mm -hmm. versus that Trump speech. I mean, I was saying to Karen off camera, it's, it's remarkable that that's his message. But also it's the message of, And it's somebody else's fault and pitting groups of people against each other. And guess what? We've we went for it in 2016, in part because there is a lot of fear about change in this country. And where do I fit in in that change? But I hope that part of what we saw coming, what we've learned coming out of the Trump years and now in this past election is, you know what? I'm tired of being divided. I'm tired Mm -hmm. of fighting. I would rather Mm -hmm. us. How can we come together? How can we, to Chris's point, What's the hope? What's the yeah. future? It's, I don't, I'm tired of the past. I'm tired of those fights. Well, you know, you mentioned um, Vice President, former Vice President Mike Pence, and Kristen, there was a moment during our town hall when um, he was asked a question about a disillusioned Republican voter who was uh, talking about the idea of not feeling like there was still the hope for many of the reasons you're talking about in the polling and beyond. Listen to this. I come from a Republican family, but I have lost faith in the Republican Party. They seem to have leaned way to the far right, and I am a middle-of-the-road sort of person. And I really hate the name-calling and the demonizing that's going on. And why should I have faith in the Republicans to lead this country? When I had the chance to go to Congress, I tried to live that out every day. And as your governor and and as Vice President of the United States. And it's a deeply held belief of mine that democracy depends on heavy doses of civility. Because as a practical matter, I will tell you that if, I've never seen a member of Congress begrudge me my views and my values in a good, vigorous debate. Never prevented us from looking for other ways to work together. But when things become personal, as they have too often on both sides of the aisle. And it makes the possibility of finding common ground very difficult. I don't know if that was the most satisfying answer for the person asking the question. Um, You know, one of the criticisms of his responses last night was that, you know, it's pretty hard 
to say yes or no in Washington, D.C. and answer a question. But yet he talked about the more contextual notion that you just addressed, Kristen. I wonder what you make of that questioner in particular as it relates to how the polls are reflecting. I mean, is this idea of the exhaustion with the lack of civility, is that something that is translating at the polls? So when you ask voters what their number one issue is, Republicans will say things like inflation and immigration. Democrats will say things like abortion, climate change. But division and anxiety about that as something that is just fundamentally broken in our country is something that you see pop up among Republicans and Democrats. If there's anything that unites us, Mm -hmm. it is anger and frustration that we are so divided. Mm. Um, The challenge for Republicans is that that voter that asked Mike Pence that question, for every one of her they lost, they did gain maybe one or half of, of a voter <laughs> that actually liked the, yeah. the, the more combative tone that felt, finally, someone's fighting for me. And so the problem is, can you find a candidate on the Republican side that can bring someone like her back while still turning out? Some of these voters that were really disconnected from politics, but for whatever reason came into the fold when Donald Trump ran. And Mike Pence is a tough messenger for this, too, because if you're someone like her... You're saying, look, you served this guy for four years. You said nothing but good things about him for four years while he lobbed these insults, et cetera. So he's not going to have that kind of I'm done with the GOP group come back to him. At the same time, sort of hardcore Republicans are looking at him and going, you didn't stay with Donald Trump on January 6th. And so he's between this real rock and a hard place that if he does have presidential ambitions, they can make it challenging for him to form. How do they get out? How do you get out of it? That's a good point. I, I just, I, civility is a tough message for Mike Pence to sell. Not, not because Mike Pence is not a civil guy. He, he is. I mean, the, the contrast between Mike Pence in that town hall last night and Donald Trump ever is vast. But he literally stood behind Donald Trump for four years like this. But he said, you know, he said in the town hall, and I, whether it's satisfying or not, he talked about the idea of, you know, he criticized in private. Okay. That he had those personal well, moments he, where he would talk about it yes, there. Yes, sure. Uh, go ahead, Karen. No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, sure. But now you're not the vice president mm-hmm. to Donald That's Trump right. anymore. And now you can say, <laughs> look, then I was doing my duty. I mean, I'll make this message up. Then I was, <laughs> let's do it on the spot. On the spot. <laughs> then I was doing my duty. I had agreed to be his vice yep. president. But now... Let me tell you who I really am and what I really care about. And to say, I don't want to see us continue to divide ourselves. I mean, there's, a, but again, I think to Kristen's point, the credibility and your point, it's, he doesn't have a lot of credibility. And he is, on it. he is so stuck between a rock and a hard place. I mean, it, you know, like if you're Mike Pence, you're the governor of Indiana, you get offered the vice presidency. You take it thinking, well, if Donald Trump loses, now I've been the vice presidential nominee, so maybe I could be the presidential nominee down the line. Donald Trump wins. So, so, I mean, I got to think he was probably surprised. Suddenly you're the vice president and you think everything's marching right in the right direction. Maybe he doesn't run again, maybe in 2028. And then January 6th happens and now you're trapped because the pro-Trump people don't think you're Trumpy enough. And the people in the including in the Republican Party who don't like Trump think you aided and abetted him no matter what you said in private. So it's, it's, it's a total no win. And there's the, the, I did a focus group for the New York Times. It was on right on the anniversary of January 6th of Republican voters. And many of the folks in this focus group, uh, we published all the transcript, they, they were not happy about what happened on January 6th. They said they turned on their TV, they saw these images, they thought they were horrifying. But then when you specifically ask about Mike Pence, even some of the ones that said that they thought everything on January 6th was regrettable said, 
you know, it would have been nice if he had at least delayed the certification. That there are a lot of folks that, 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 you, that are not the full-on big lie, you know, type folks, but nevertheless still think, I don't know that I'm with what he did that day. Even though many folks might say what he did was really brave, there are enough Republicans that actually don't view it as bravery, and that's going to be a problem. That's fascinating to think about. I mean, just the, the damned if you do, damned if you don't, and also condemned if you've done nothing. <laughs> which is part of the issue here. Thank you so much, you guys. Really important conversation. Also, first on CNN, the lead agent from the former president, Donald Trump's motorcade on January 6th. Well, he was interviewed by the January 6th committee today. So what will that mean for Donald Trump's now third run for the White House? Tonight, Donald Trump facing one investigation after another in the midst of his now declared third run for the White House. And there's news tonight on one of those investigations. Sources telling CNN the January 6th committee has interviewed Robert Engel. Now, you might remember that name. Engel was the lead agent in then-President Trump's motorcade on the day of the Capitol attack. So what will all of this mean for Trump's candidacy? Let's bring in CNN legal analysts Norm Eisen and Elliot Williams. Glad to see you both. Always fun to talk to my fellow lawyers about these issues in particular, because, look, first of all, he may have announced Norm, but it doesn't mean anything actually stopped in terms of the outside investigations, the questions that were still circulating. I mean, just we showed that graphic of all the different things that were out there still. You and I have talked about this. I want to begin here because... Look, I'm always wondering about the money. Who's paying for these legal bills? Who is footing the money here? Laura, now that Donald Trump has announced his campaign will be able to foot these legal bills, if he had waited until after, say, Georgia DA in Fulton County, uh, Fonnie Willis had charged him, there might be an argument that that wasn't related to the campaign. But since he went first, his campaign contributors can foot him in the campaign, in his pack. The RNC had been paying. They won't pay anymore. So uh, he could actually be using his campaign as a funding mechanism to deal with his legal problems. And the RNC, as you mentioned, can't pay. They have a policy that says they cannot show some favor to a now candidate or otherwise. It's fascinating to think about that, Elliot, as the mechanism of how you could actually do it. But I'm really curious about this moment in terms of Bobby Engel. And I want to remind the audience, do you remember this moment when Cassidy Hutchinson testified? And it was that moment everyone was talking about, about whether Trump reached for a steering wheel in anger for not being able to go down to the Capitol. Here's that moment, remember? The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. We're going back to the West Wing. We're not going to the Capitol. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. And when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. So, Elliot, this is still ongoing, the January 6th committee, and obviously there was testimony today. I I wonder what you make of the potential. I mean, if Bobby Engel corroborates what she said, which was challenged, if you remember at the time, 
What impact do you think this would have on the investigation and obviously the forthcoming report? Yeah, you know, not a ton, Laura. And I spent a bunch of time both working for Congress and then around Congress when I was at the Justice Department helping to prepare testimony. My sense is that the committee is sort of in cleanup mode because, like you said, there was a factual dispute over whether this altercation took place. Now, Cassidy Hutchinson gave that testimony, but there were some uh, comments in the press that it didn't happen. What they're doing, I think, by bringing him in again is just clearing it up. And seeing what they can put in a report that corroborates whether this uh, altercation had happened. Now, look, even if it didn't, it, this is not the piece of, of evidence or information that's going to make or break the January 6th committee's work. What is not in dispute is that, number one, the former president was not happy with the election result and had challenged it by going around the country to, to, you know, with slates of uh, fake electors. We know that for certain. Whether he grabbed the guy's neck or shoulder or did not doesn't change the underlying uh, sort of heft of what, what might come in the report and, and certainly doesn't change the question of whether anybody's going to be charged with a crime following uh, based on the report that they put out. Speaking of charges, Norm, and the idea, I mean, I wonder, do you see the prospects? You've written a number of reports on these issues, along with the Brennan Center in particular, and I, I follow your work, obviously. Um, and I'm wondering, do you think that there could be charges coming, either from the DOJ or from Fannie Willis. There's obviously other investigations at the state level in, in Manhattan and beyond. Do you see the prospect of these charges? Because this is really a, a, the perpetual billion-dollar question from so many voters when they talk about the purported Teflon Don. Uh, Laura, I think we're going to see likely a one-two punch Fulton County DA Fannie Willis charging for the fake electoral slates and the solicitation of election fraud, the election denial, uh, alleged crimes uh, of the 2020 election, followed by today, had a big report out, uh, prosecution memo uh, with uh, Just Security at NYU, uh, the Mar-a-Lago document mishandling issues. Big federal exposure there. If anybody else in the country had taken even one of those classified national security information documents with them uh, from the White House, they would be subject to prosecution. Donald Trump took dozens. I think it is very likely, my co-authors agree, very likely that DOJ is going to prosecute that. And speaking of Fulton County, Elliot, I mean, just look at this on the screen. I mean, you've got this probe. Who has already testified in that particular probe? You're talking about Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, and the governor-elect yet again. You've got Cassie Hutchinson. And then you have upcoming in that familiar faces, including Senator Lindsey Graham and also Michael Flynn. And I wonder, do you think that this particular investigation, Elliot, poses the biggest litigation or prosecutorial threat? And if not, what does? No, that, that, that's an excellent question. Uh, now, it's clear that they've gathered a tremendous amount of evidence, and frankly, as Norm has laid out uh, in his report a few days ago, the, a big thing that's going to arise from this that we should all be prepared for are legal challenges from the president to being tried in Georgia. Number one, the first thing he could do is try to move it to federal court, saying that it doesn't belong uh, in a Fulton County courthouse. He could make the argument that, so for instance, you know, as we've heard before, that he's immune from certain kinds of suit based on uh, having been president of the United States or that he had First Amendment 
issues or so on. Now, look, we can dispute and disagree with this till we're blue in the face as we're talking here, but those have to be resolved by a court, and that will certainly cause some delay in time. Now, again, I'm, I'm going back to my friend Norm's report, sort of makes the case that, that he likely loses on some of these claims, and he might, but at the end of the day, they have to be litigated in court and, and, and frankly, nowhere else. And Norm, this could be slow rolled, right? I mean, you kick the can down the road as long as you can till there ain't no road, as they once said. I think that was, it may have been Back to the Future 1, not Mad Max. I think that's definitely what it is. It's Doc saying that. Do you think the kicking of the can down the road all this time, I mean, that could obviously pass the good night period of the January 6th committee. Will this be resolved by the time, what, we have six weeks to go until the new Congress begins? Laura, I don't know if we're going back to the future or forward to the past with Donald Trump's delay strategy that we've seen so often. We're going to continue to see. Uh, But here's his dilemma. Every day there is going to be news because of these two investigations and the many others that are going on, that one-two punch in Georgia and the federal document case. Every day there's going to be news about subpoenas being served, witnesses testifying, witnesses not testifying. If there are charges, if Elliot is right, there's a Georgia case and it's removed, that will make news. I don't think with the political challenges Donald Trump already has, the failure of his election denial movement, his chosen candidates failing, that is going to be another anvil around his neck, this criminality, uh, as your previous segment said. Where I, where I have to disagree are tired with you. of the fight. Yeah, where I have to disagree a little bit with you, Norm, though, is that that assumes that either the president or the supporters of the president actually regard uh, being charged with a crime or being investigated by, uh, frankly, Democrat Democratic elected officials or appointed officials as a bad thing. Um, and it actually could be motivating or animating for the president's supporters. So mm. I'm, I'm just not convinced necessarily, like I hear you and I, and you know, that's the way it should be. Right. But um, it, it, there might be a motivating element to some of this too, I think. Well, gentlemen, there's, there was a time in all of our lives when being investigated by DOJ would not have been a badge of honor. Right. But, you know, we, I mean, I'm, I'm not getting any younger. So we'll see what happens next about these issues. Thank you so much. We'll leave it for another day because there will be more days of these very conversations. Thank you, gentlemen. Take Speaking of longer days for some, a mass exodus seems to be underway at Twitter and Elon Musk is responding. He's closing offices. He's blocking employee access. Yes, you are experiencing deja vu. And if you went by a Starbucks today, I drove by one in Minnesota earlier today when I was in St. Paul. I saw workers who were striking right outside. And you may have seen them in your area of the country as well. We'll talk about all of this next. So the question tonight, how many employees are left at Twitter. It's a night of turmoil at new owner Elon Musk's company. Offices closed, employee access suspended, and what appears to be a mass exodus of workers who don't want to commit to Musk's extremely hardcore, whatever that means, work ultimatum. Remember, the deadline was 5 p.m. today. Meanwhile, some 2,000 Starbucks employees staged a one-day strike at more than 100 stores nationwide protesting the company's approach to union contract negotiations. So what does all this tell us about what workers are expecting from their jobs right now? Back with me, Chris Saliza, Karen Finney, and Kristen Soltis-Anderson. You know, let me start with you here, Chris, because, I mean, first of all, just put into context, 
In a world where we have relied so heavily on social yes. media, frankly, when it comes to politics, I mean, it's, it's, it's the worst and news. kept and news. Yeah. Um, the fact that it's in turmoil, it's not like a, a dismissed story. It really is top of mind for a reason. It is central to how I do my job, I will say that. It, I use it as a news feed. I maybe dumbly never thought of it just disappearing suddenly because it, you know, I, yes, it's not as big as Facebook. I get that. But, you know, it's still a big company. Boomer, we I, call that meta now. Meta. Oh, yeah. Go ahead. I should have worn the tie. Um, I, you know, I just, I laughed a little bit in your intro. And then I thought to myself, it's really not a laughing matter. Like you're talking about half of the staff losing their jobs when he takes over. And then whatever this is, the lockout, I don't know what to call it. Um, You know, it's, I, I just think it's, if I didn't know better, I would wonder how the heck Elon Musk got so rich. Because he, look, he didn't inherit this money. SpaceX, Tesla, he disrupted the car industry. I mean, this is someone who has real accomplishments. This isn't someone whose dad was rich and now he's rich. But it doesn't seem like someone who's a good businessman is running Twitter with Twitter's best interests at heart. The things that he's doing, the... The, you have to be extremely hardcore. What does that even, I mean, like, can you quantify what extreme hardcore means? Is that like 8 to 8 p.m. work hours? Like, and by the way, this is for 7,500 employees. Right, that's right. We're talking about the, the scope of this problem and their families. Yes, but it was written in a way that if, if somebody, if my boss sent that to me, I'd be like, okay, well, peace out. I mean, <laughs> it was not written in a way that says, we value you. We value the work that you do. It was all this talk about you have to prove your excellence, yeah. but no measure of what, what does that actually mean. Yeah. Frankly, I feel like it seems to me the only thing that seems to make sense is that this was part of the plan all along, to run Twitter into the ground, declare bankruptcy for reasons but he I spent have no idea. I'm not sure there seems like there was a plan, which is Fair. why I, this to me seems like it's going to be studied in business schools for a long time as an example of a change in leadership going very badly, at least in the short term. Maybe there is a plan. Maybe his his vision to let's get rid of all of the staff and let's start from scratch will build a bigger, better Twitter down the road, but it does seem like this is all very ad hoc at the moment, which for a company as influential as Twitter was, yep. is, is fascinating. Look, if it goes away tomorrow, I gave up Twitter for Lent a few years ago, and it was oh. a really refreshing couple of weeks. Did yes. you stay off? Uh, no, of course not. <laughs> of course not. Um, and, and I think Twitter actually has, provi- has served, as much as it can be a toxic wasteland a lot, it has served a valuable purpose in that yes. 10 years ago, a little junior analyst like yes. me writing little missives about how the Republican Party was losing young voters. Twitter gave a chance for a nobody like me to get her stuff in front of big-name people who would maybe take it seriously. So Twitter can be a useful platform for people to get visibility, but it's it's not perfect. And so if it goes away, I'll only be sort of sad. I, well, let me tell you on this on that notion. I, and first of all, I'm a I'm a nobody. Are you nobody too? I love that moment. Aww. I'm thinking about this, but you think about where we are with this. And I just can't. First of all, there is a luxury in being able to peace out, right? There's a luxury yes. in being able to say, okay, well, I take it or leave it. Well, then leave it. <laughs> but there's also the idea here that we're talking about as a study in business school. 
I think we've grown accustomed in the society that our feelings matter in business. Yes. We've, this is this is a learned behavior where the idea of having your your morale yep. as employees is more important, or if not as important as the bottom line. And I wonder if this reversion, in some ways, is what people are are really responding to the idea of you know we have quiet quitting in our midst. Mm-hmm. We have the, um, not too long ago, you had the Sheryl Sandberg lean in discussion about that. And now you've got this weird period we're in where they're saying, no, you got to work hard, the bottom line, all these important. Is it our societal sort of spines on our back now? Well, I think it's still a business that relies on people that people yeah. have to engage yes. with. That, it's true. That's the difference. So, I mean, yep. you know, it's different than building a car or building a, a rocket, right, where um, I think some of the types of deadlines and the, the products you're creating are different. This is a people business. Well, and, and you, as, is, as is Starbucks, of course, are fighting for that right now, yes. the unionization. We'll see how that all unpacks. Everyone up next, new developments tonight in the shocking case of four students found stabbed to death in their home, a small college town that hasn't seen a murder since 2015. We're on the scene after this. Four days after the murders of four students at the University of Idaho, there is still no suspect named, no murder weapon found, and very few answers, leaving a college town not only in mourning, but on edge. Autopsy results did confirm today the 20- and 21-year-olds killed at their off-campus home on Sunday were stabbed to death. And there's now video of two of those victims, Madison Mogan and Kaylee Goncalves, at a food truck early in the morning on Sunday before they were killed when they returned to their home. More now from CNN's Veronica Miracle, who's been following this mystery closely in Moscow, Idaho. Laura, late today we learned those autopsies have been completed. The coroner's report just released, confirming what police have already revealed, which is that those four students, Ethan Chapin, Madison Mogan, Zaina Kernodal, and Kaylee Guncalves, were all stabbed to death. Now, the crime scene was very active today. We saw investigators still combing through evidence, taking photos inside that house. And this as neighbors, many of them who are University of Idaho students, are still grappling with what has happened. Take a listen. I just don't even think it's like set in yet. Like, you know, how insane this is. And the fact that there's no answers is like the worst feeling ever. Like, I know all of us are just waiting to get out of here as fast as we can. And yeah, it's just, it's heartbreaking. And that's like the scariest part because we're just like, well, we're a hundred feet away. You know, how close was this person? Are they still around? Like where, I don't know, it's so scary. Laura, there are still so many unanswered questions, including if one suspect did this or if there were multiple suspects. Police don't know that. They also don't know why this happened. They don't have a motive. But they do believe this was a targeted attack based on evidence that they found inside the home. What that evidence is, they are not revealing yet to the public. Laura? Veronica, thank you so much. We've also got news on the deadly shooting at UVA. Three students killed, others injured, and now one of those injured students finally able to communicate after spending days in the ICU. Stay with us. New developments tonight on the devastating shooting at the University of Virginia. Virginia's Attorney General will review what led to Sunday's shooting of three football players and the wounding of two others. Their faces are on the screen right now. 
A special counsel will look into how school officials assess the potential threat that was posed by the 22-year-old suspect and student before the killings. Their state police in Virginia will also now be taking over the shooting investigation, and the suspect faces three charges of second-degree murder and three counts of using a handgun in the commission of a felony. He also faces two counts of malicious wounding, each accompanied by a firearm charge. He remains held without bond. His next hearing is next month. But we're learning tonight one of the two students seriously injured. UVA running back Michael Hollins is no longer intubated and has been moved from the ICU after surgeries. According to a family friend, he is doing better. Another survivor was released from the hospital earlier this week. Thank you all for watching. Now, before we go, here's a look at the new CNN film, Gabby Giffords Won't Back Down. It takes viewers inside Giffords' relentless fight to recover from the 2011 assassination attempt and her new life as one of the most effective activists in the battle against gun violence today. It premieres Sunday at 9 p.m. Here's a preview. All right, ready? Joining us now is Representative Gabrielle Giffords. If an idea is a good idea, it's a good idea. Congresswoman Giffords was the target of the mass shooting. She's beginning several months of rehab. Give me two fingers. All right. Give me five. Five. You are not allowed to quit on me. Good news about Congresswoman Gabby Giffords. She was discharged today. The words are there in my brain. I just can't get them out. She laughs at my jokes, even when they're bad. She funny. Thinks, she thinks funny, like... funny, funny, funny. Gabby Giffords making her way back to the Capitol. Too many children are dying. We must do something. Nobody could have been more compelling than Gabby was that day. Gabby Giffords won't back down. Sunday night at 9, only on CNN. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.